Welcome back, guys. We haven't recorded. Uh, we haven't recorded in Skype on a, in a very long time. It's been about two months. Yeah. <laughs> we but we were hours maybe. But we're we were all just like holding hands, recording in person, just a couple weeks ago. It was great. Just a lot of deep eye contact. Yeah, it was magical. <laughs> and red shirts that you're still wearing. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. I, I am wearing a red curbsider yeah. shirt. I, I always like to record wearing a curbsider shirt. It makes me feel more official. Stuart, I don't know what you're wearing there. My pajamas. Why are you asking <laughs> what I'm wearing? <laughs> you really want to know? It's okay. like Jake from from a, what, Allstate. <laughs> okay. As as everyone yeah, starts to tune out, uh, don't tune out. <laughs> we are talking about venous thromboembolism. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Otherwise isn't, known isn't as Paul supposed to say what we do. Otherwise known as DVT and PE. But before we get to all that, uh, Paul, can you tell the audience what we do on this show? All right. Still frantically processing a red shoe diary joke. Um, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And then we also like to get to know the guest a little bit at the beginning of the episode. I suppose you could skip past that, but why would you? Um, but if you really, really feel compelled to and your your time is that crunched, um, you can certainly refer to the show notes that have timestamps. So now uh, we should probably introduce our guest host, Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Hey, guys. Happy to, happy to be on the show as always. And uh, we, you want to tell them a little bit about what they can expect from this show tonight, Justin? Absolutely. We have a great show lined up for you guys with Dr. Michael Strife. Uh, we talk about uh, VTE, DVT, and PE, some definitions, some approach to diagnoses, some risk stratification tools, and uh, generalized treatment for each and kind of the rise of the DOACs. And then we end with uh, some great lightning round questions. It's a phenomenal show, guys. Just a great show. Yes. I love that word. Definitely. I really do. It definitely answered a lot of things on my on my DVT PE wish list. Things ma- mainly things that I get asked on a nearly daily basis that I don't didn't know the answers to. Now have a much better at least idea. Well, I talked to this great expert, and this is what he said, which is my favorite <laughs> my favorite response. <laughs> That's my favorite response. That's probably the best part of doing the show is I get to say that about like uh, at what going on now a hundred fifty ish conditions. So. Uh, I, I guess like the, we've done this enough now that I can just say that and people aren't going to fact check me. So even if I'm not, <laughs> I still have a pretty good leg to stand on. I I think I'm just around a tough crowd. I, I think maybe, maybe people just don't trust my face because I get <laughs> people. I, I have to send references with everything I say. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Michael Strife. His major clinical interest involves the prevention and treatment of venous thromboembolism. He chairs the Venous Thromboembolism Guideline Committee for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network and has served on international consensus panels to develop standardized guidelines for the use of vena cava filters in the management of venous thromboembolism. As medical director of the Anticoagulation Management Service and Outpatient Clinics, at Johns Hopkins University, he has been actively involved in developing policies and procedures for standardizing anticoagulation management and guidelines for VTE prevention at Johns Hopkins. 
And uh, let me tell you, this episode is packed full of uh, incredible incredible facts about venous thromboembolism. It's definitely going to be practice changing. So without further ado, please enjoy this extensive conversation. Hey, Matt, do you know what you say to a hematologist when he graduates fellowship? I, I don't know. Coagulations. <laughs> I mean, they're just... It's simply amazing. I actually don't hate that one. I'm not sure what that's about <laughs> me. I must be exhausted. <laughs> Are these prepared or off the cuff? That this was, was off the cuff. Yeah, that's pretty good. Our first question for all our guests is always really easy. It's, can you give us a one-liner about yourself and definitely include something that you do outside the world of medicine? Sure. So, well, thanks a lot for the invitation to join you guys on the podcast and uh, so I'm a uh, Floridian, so I'm from Gainesville, Florida. So I'm a, a Florida Gator who uh, used to love to surf. Don't do it so much anymore because I got an old <laughs> love. Uh, heavy metal concerts, I used to go to them a lot. A lot less recently. I just gotten too busy, but I still, if Judas Priest is on tour, I'll go find him. Uh, and I love clotting. Those are That's kind of me. I'm a pretty monochromatic kind of guy <laughs> rock i used to surf although my surfboards sit in the uh my basement now because <laughs> i'm out of shape and uh and and uh clots so that's me i feel Lots like paul rock. yeah i feel like yeah. paul williams has to ask the next question okay <laughs> probably something about judas priest awesome <laughs> what's your favorite song like, yeah well no that's a t- that's not even fair to ask I usually ask about book, but now now you have me curious. So what is the, the last heavy metal concert that you've been to? Oh, Judas Priest. They, they okay. came through Baltimore a couple of years ago. I guess before that, Rat was here one time. <laughs> oh, they're kind nice. of a hair, they're a hair band, though. Sure. Kind of more, yeah. Um, who else? Uh, the Cult was here a few years ago. ACDC, I saw him a few years in Verizon Center. Um, but uh, good run. Yeah, but it's it, Baltimore's kind of... Oh, uh, Queensryche was here like a year or two ago. Um, yeah, so I, those are the kind of bands I listen to, much to my wife's disgust. <laughs> <laughs> she bans me from uh, <laughs> well, from the, uh, I guess, the iPod when I'm in the car. <laughs> um, Is that required listening on uh, rounds? Uh, no, I no, I would. I think I'd get a talking to by uh, Sanjay or or Mark Anderson would call me to. His office and uh, abrade me about it. So no, I don't do that. We're high fives all around. That's actually. Audra, <laughs> <laughs> one of the questions I always like: uh, Can you share the best advice you ever received, either as a learner or as a teacher, or sometime along your career? Yeah. So um, I I got advice from, I guess as a student, um. Uh, Locke Conley was a, uh, one of the uh, professors here in hematology and medicine. And, um, I guess he taught me a couple of things. One persistence. He said, never, if you have an article that gets rejected 10 times, you just send it to the 11th place. And initially when you're writing articles, you get rejected a lot. And, um, so that I've, I've been kind of incorporated that cause I've gotten rejection a lot. <laughs> Not just in writing articles too. <laughs> Talked to my wife. It was it was a multiple anyway. No. <laughs> she didn't say yes the first time I went out on the date. Um, and uh, so that was one thing. I guess um, 
Uh, what else is he? Oh, he also said always, um, always be thinking about if you have a question that comes up when you're on rounds or you're seeing a patient in clinic, make notes of that. If that's something you'd like to study, always have study ideas. Think of what's the next idea you want to study and mm-hmm. have at least one a week. And some of them you'll think about more and it won't make sense to study it. There won't be a good way to study it. But um, that's something else that he taught me. And um, Craig Kitchens also taught me that, who was uh, uh, when I was in residency at Florida, he um, said the same thing, you know, told me the same things. And uh, let's see uh, other things that um, besides that, um, besides persistence. I mean, I guess in finding your niche and uh, I mean, something you really love, like uh, clots. I mean, it's a very small world of medicine, but um, I kind of fell into this because uh, the person I love to work with here at Hopkins, Dr. Bell, did it. And so I saw lots of patients with blood clots and followed him around like a puppy dog. And then <laughs> and then that, you know, and, th- and then I've kind of focused in that area. So if you're going to be in a, like an academic, like an academic calling is in a medical center, then I'd find a niche that you really love because you'll want to do it all the time and you'll generally be successful. Um, and I'm. I guess somewhat successful what I've done just by doing it a lot, you know, and um, I think it's much harder to be a, uh, an expert in lots of different areas. Like I think my hats go off to internists because God, those guys have to know everything, you know, something about everything. All I got to know about is hematology. So it's a lot easier for me. <laughs> so normally we ask about a favorite book or a book that you think everyone should read. Uh, what about movies? What's your favorite movie or a movie? Well, that do I, have a, I do have a book. Actually, I, so I want to, oh, you do. I do. Oh okay. yeah. 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 I actually got it off my shelf. Cause I have it on my shelf that, um, this is one, um, where you can see it, uh, the lost art of healing and Craig kitchens told me to read this as an intern. And I don't know, maybe it was my, I don't know if it was my bedside manner or something like that. He said, <laughs> boy, you got to go read this book. But The Lost Art of Healing by Bernard Lown, who is a professor of cardiology up at Harvard. And it's kind of like, the, uh, it's a series of patient vignettes that uh, taught me to be a better doctor. I mean, to really listen to patients, to, to kind of put yourself in the patient's shoes. It made me more empathetic, I think. And I, I think... Um, we all have, you know, when you get into medicine, that's kind of in, in inbred in your DNA. But to me, it, it brought it home to me. So I think that that to me is it was a great book. It taught me a lot. And I still think about it when I'm seeing patients. You probably thought you needed that to balance out your Judas Priest and heavy metal. <laughs> I guess <laughs> heavy so. metal My wife would wish I'd do this more, <laughs> read this more than listen to the heavy metal or buy, buy stuff from iTunes. But um, anyway. Well, I want to give us plenty of time to talk about DVT sure, and sure. PE, venous thromboembolism. Justin, why don't you start us off with uh, a case? Great. So uh, in the clinic at Cashlick Memorial, we have a 64-year-old female named Emmy Bolism. She was recently hospitalized for a total hip replacement surgery. She comes to the clinic with pain and increased swelling in her left calf. On exam, she has pitting edema just on her left leg. She has new superficial veins and some localized tenderness. She's not febrile. There's no other signs of skin changes suggestive of cellulitis or infection, and she's never really had this type of swelling before. So taking Ms. Bolism in uh, account, wanted to kind of have you talk about um, the diagnosis of a DVT or VTE and kind of introduce some of the terms that we're talking with when we talk about blood clots. Yeah, so I guess um, 
we talk about the world of venous clots. The, the disease, we call it now venous thromboembolism is kind of an umbrella term. And that refers, at least to my mind, refers to uh, any vein clot. So it can be a deep vein thrombosis, which is a, a clot that can be either in the distal veins of the calf, such as the perineal vein, or it can be a proximal DVT, which are much more dangerous, obviously, in the popliteal veins and up from there into the femoral and iliac veins. Um, and then if you have a DVT that, and of course, you can also have it in the upper extremities too. Um, and then you can have a, uh, if it embolizes, it becomes a pulmonary embolism, which is what we try to stay away from or try to prevent um, while treating our DVTs, you know, when we making the diagnosis early. Um, and then I can also count superficial vein thrombosis or superficial vein, venous thrombophlebitis because they, if they progress, can become a DVT and are treated more and more like we used to treat them with non-steroidals. And I think more and more, if you have large superficial vein thrombosis, you're treating that with an anticoagulant rather than non-steroidals and, you know, uh, warm compresses, et cetera. So, um, so those are really the, the major venous clotting events that we think of on the umbrella of venous thromboembolism. I guess some people may throw mesenteric or splanchnic vein thrombosis in on that or cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. But the major ones, the most important ones, the most common ones are deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and then superficial uh, venous thrombosis or venous thrombophobitis. And then so as far as diagnosis uh, in our young woman here that has a, uh, um, sounds very much like she has a deep, a, a deep vein thrombosis, is that you, the symptoms of it are generally people, the most common symptom I hear people relate to me is if they've got a lower extremity clot is kind of a crampy pain in the calf that just won't go away. So it's like having a, a leg cramp that you can't walk off, that you can't massage out. And then oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes with that, they'll have distension of the calf or uh, feel like they have a pressure sensation in the calf. You can have, and then signs, you may have changes in the color often, changes in the size of the limb, uh, edema in the ankles. Um, and uh, uh, often then you also think about what kind of triggers they, that might have contributed to this because a lot of clots have a trigger. In this person, they had surgery recently, so major surgery is a huge risk factor for deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. It's the biggest of all. I mean, it raises your risk about 100-fold compared to the baseline risk of the population. So someone that's had a surgery recently and comes in with any lower extremity symptoms, you got to put you know DVT way up on your lists several times, I would say. Um, and that that's what, you know, some of the pretest probability models are based on like the wells criteria are based on kind of signs and symptoms that make you think it's a deep vein thrombosis rather than a cellulitis or or edema from congestive heart failure and are there any historical features that really raise your eyebrows so you mentioned recent surgery i know malignancy i feel like in, in my own practice or at least talking to others, like I'll hear things like, well, they're obese or they smoked a cigarette once or they took an oral contraceptive in 1973. And so like, I, like what things really make you nervous and then what are the risk factors or maybe not as contributory as we might think? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. So I think that obviously surgery and cancer are, are very big risk factors. 
Um, but other ones would be a recent hospitalization. They are recently in the hospital and have just come out in the last, usually that's within the last few months or so. And with surgery, I didn't put a time frame on that. Usually you're thinking about surgery as a risk factor for about, most of the risk is in the first six to 12 weeks. And then after that, the risk goes way down after that. And there are nice studies from Great Britain looking at like the time course of when DVTs occur and PEs occur after surgery. And a lot of it's front-loaded in the first six weeks, but it doesn't go down toward baseline for months and months afterwards. But you're really thinking three months after the surgery is being the risk period. Uh, same thing for a, a medical hospitalization, oral contraceptives or hormone replacement therapy, not as big a risk factor as surgery or cancer, but certainly if someone has just started an oral contraceptive or just started a hormone, you know, hormone replacement therapy, which fortunately we see a lot less these days, that is certainly something you would that it raises your risk three to fourfold. So I would definitely ask about that. If so, and I ask about if um, people are using um, excessive use of testosterone, not replacement doses. Don't seem to be a risk factor for DVT or PE. But if you're if someone's juicing that. We've seen people have events in that setting. Um, for estrogen, it's usually in the first six to twelve months. If that it may is primarily a risk factor, and once you get beyond that, it's much much less a risk factor. And so, when I see someone in clinic and they say, "Oh yeah, I've been on it for ten years," then I discount that to a large extent, or even a couple of years, because then I think of that person's clot is more likely related to something else or putting them more closer to the unprovoked category rather than an estrogen associated event pregnancy that you know that's a risk factor that we have to think about um obesity is is a risk factor it's it's kind of doubles your risk and as your uh bmi goes upward may get up to in some studies as high as fourfold over the wow. population but i mean that's big we're talking people with bmis 40 and 50 when you're talking fourfold so you're talking big people but again, it's um, that's a I, I guess much smaller risk than our major ones, which are you know cancer and uh, major surgery, ho medical hospitalization. Um, Doctor so, Strife, I wanted yeah. to uh, you're, the, the stuff you're kind of talking about, and you mentioned it already. The the Wells score for DVT, and right. I should point out to the audience: there's a Wells score for PE, and there's a Wells score for DVT. Right. The the Wells score for DVT. It has a lot of the risk, the historical risk factors you're talking about, and then it also combines in some of the physical exam findings. Right. Um, so, is there like, are you carrying a, uh, are you carrying like a tape measure and actually measuring the calf circumference? Oh, for and, the three, no, no, you know, no, I don't do that. No, I mean, if there's obviously it's, um, I guess I have done that in clinic sometimes, but generally I'm not if they have obvious calf swelling. Mm -hmm. that I'm counting that in the Wells score. And I'm usually pulling it up on my phone, actually, yeah. the Wells criteria, because it's so, it's so easy to find. And all these, you know, the 4T score, all these different, you know, pretest probability models, I pull them up on my phone. And, or Geneva, you could bring up the Geneva score. You know, if you want to use the Geneva model for DVTP diagnosis, you could do that as well. Mm -hmm. Wells, I think, has been more, has been validated to a greater extent and has been around for a long while. So most people are using that mm -hmm. i think when they're seeing outpatients in the inpatient world I, I because it's mostly an outpatient tool 
I haven't used it in, mm-hmm. in inpatients. I use it more in clinic or if you happen to be in the ED, that would be something I would use in conjunction with the D-dimer, which is makes it up a, a very powerful risk stratification uh, strategy. Right. Um, so, yeah. so you're saying the uh, and and some of, I was looking up some algorithms. So I'm not maybe you can recommend to us a specific article or a specific algorithm you follow. But a lot of the articles were saying you kind of take the history, you use a clinical decision tool like the Wells score. So for in this right. case, we could calculate a Wells score for our patient, and then they said if it's if it's high probability, they would proceed right to ultrasound. But if it's a low or intermediate, then maybe you would do the D dimer. But can you tell us what what you like to do? I usually, uh, I usually end up sending a D-dimer on anyone I'm suspicious and do it just because it's an easy, it's rap. We can get them pretty rapidly mm-hmm. and it's easy to do unless it's, unless it's very obvious. <laughs> I usually say I, if someone looks like they're an extremist from a PE or their leg is huge, then I just go to ultrasound. But if there's uh, most of the time I'm doing a D-dimer too, okay. if I'm in an outpatient environment. The D-dimer, the D-dimer I've I've asked this recently to other people as well, but uh, and and I've got some varied answers over time. What do you do the age adjusted D dimer, and do you recommend that our audience does that for for patients over fifty? It's you multiply times ten, I think. Yeah, I have been using that for older patients. Okay. Um, the uh, other people used like in the years criteria that you'd mentioned, you know, as as another algorithm that people are starting to use, although it's a lot, it's not been around as long um, that uh, they use thresholds of like 500 and a thousand. And then in combination with the years, which are only like three criteria, you know, like homoptis, that's for P, but homoptis is DVT signs or symptoms and P's uh, the likely diagnosis. So it's a much simpler model, but um, I do use age adjusted D dimer when I'm looking at older patients, so they're over than 50. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so for instance, if it's a fifty-year-old person, you multiply age times ten, so five. five you would expect, five, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'd expect it either be yeah. five hundred or 0.5, depending on the right. the units your lab's using. Eighty-year-old right. person, eight hundred or less. Right. So if it's above that, you consider it elevated. Right. Okay. And do you find? I guess the idea behind doing that is that you're supposed to be able to exclude, like, kind of avoid imaging in certain patients. Yeah, because it's the over time, you know, as we age, our D dimer levels in, in the general population go upward. And so you otherwise what happens is you find in older people, you're doing a lot more studies, you're doing a lot more ultrasounds or CTs. So it helps it make it a little bit more specific. Okay. Maybe not going into treatment quite yet, but once you have a clear diagnosis of a DVT, whether um, based on very significant physical exam findings and elevated D dimer, or you confirm with ultrasound. What are the important factors used to categorize the clot, um, or what are the characteristics that will eventually guide treatment for um, duration of anticoagulation? Yeah, so the big—I mean, I guess your uh, your big—you're uh, either going to anticoagulate or you're going to. Well, there are, th- I guess, three paths you could go down. If you if someone's obviously has horrific bleeding or clinically bleeding, and you're not going to be able to use an anticoagulant. Then you have to start, or they just had neurosurgery. Then you got to go down the the filter pathway. I don't go down that pathway that often, but I do use vena cava filters when you can't, obviously can't use anticoagulation. That's the only time I use them. Um, most of your patients are going to get anticoagulation is going to is what you're going to do, and so 
that's generally the pathway you're going to go for the vast majority of people if you have. And that would be for people that have, I still tend to treat uh, caffeine DVT with anticoagulation. That's not universally done. In Europe, you'll see that people tend to, um, if they pick up a calf DVT, they tend to half the time watch, do a serial ultrasound to see if they really need to treat it because there are studies showing that not all calf DVTs become symptomatic proximal DVTs and not all of them need to be treated. If someone comes to me, though, with calf pain and they have a calf DVT, I think it's pretty hard not to treat that. So I treat my caffeine DVTs with three months of anticoagulation. We might be able to get away with six weeks, but I think that the study, the duration of therapy studies that have been done in that, there's only one real study that's really looked at that. It's six weeks versus 12 weeks. I think we need more data before you treat it six weeks. I might do that in someone that's really high bleeding risk. Otherwise, I do 12 weeks for a calf DVT. So if you have a calf DVT, I tend to treat most of those if they're symptomatic. If you have proximal DVT, obviously all of those. So that proximal would be popliteal vein, femoral vein, common femoral vein, and then iliac veins, you know, going up from there. And then the final, I guess, treatment we haven't, we don't do as much as we used to, I think, since the ATTRACT trial is catheter-directed thrombolysis. And that would be if you have somebody that has a, a really big clot, so it, usually the, the people that are going to benefit from catheter-directed thrombolysis are one, people that are at low risk for bleeding. So it's usually younger people, haven't had recent invasive procedures, and they have large clots. So that usually means they got iliac vein involvement. And um, I tend to go down that pathway if someone has either a clot that's not responding to anticoagulation alone or someone that I'm suspicious they have an anatomic reason for their clot, such as something called May-Thurner syndrome or iliac vein compression syndrome, where the uh, right iliac artery crosses the left iliac vein and compresses it and causes uh, basically vascular damage that leads to formation of a stenosis there and then clot can form there. And often you, the classic case is a, a woman starts oral contraceptives and then they come in with a, you know, a, a iliofemoral DVT. So that's why it's always important to look, to know, to make sure you can see the top of your clot, the, the most proximal, uh, I guess, area where the clot is. So if you can't see the top of it with your ultrasound, then you need to do imaging to make sure that you, you don't have may Thurner syndrome, because those are people that you want to open up if they're at low risk of bleeding. You want to open those people up because you usually want to put a stent in there to keep that open generally. Um, so thrombolysis generally I refer, reserve for people not getting better with their anticoagulation over the first few days or people that have huge clots that are causing. Like, uh, like major or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You got you, you got arterial compromise. Or their uh, or their their leg is just really symptomatic after a few days of anticoagulation. They can't they're not getting better. Or someone I think has May Thurner syndrome because those people usually are not going to do well with anticoagulation. You're going to have to open that up. So, but that's a lot fewer people than we used to do more aggressive thrombolysis. But the ATTRACT trial it was published I guess like December 2017 or sometime in that time frame. Uh, suggests that there really wasn't any benefit for post-thrombotic syndrome, so we don't do it anymore except for really big clots. 
What are your thoughts on placing IVC filters prophylactically in trauma patients? I, you know, they're just, the data are so poor, really, that we really don't have good data that, that show that they do anything. And so I think that the vast majority of people, you can get away with prophylaxis. You don't need to put a filter in. So I never, I never advocate for putting them in, in massive trauma patients. I would say use mechanical compression stock, you know, the, your SCDs, start your prophylaxis when you can. A lot of times you can start it pretty soon. And the studies that show that filters do anything are often like before, after, like historically controlled trials. There's no randomized trial. And so I think that that's the kind of data we need to, to start doing filters because filters have a lot of downsides. I mean, of course, I'm a little biased. The people that come to me with filters are usually people that have had troubles, but they fracture, their legs get into, into places you don't want them to get into. They cause recurrent clots, mm-hmm. so I right. stay away from them. So I think, I I think it's very rare you're going to have a, a trauma patient. You're going to need to put that in unless they've developed a clot, you know. Then I, and you can't put them on a full dose anticoagulation. I think that's a rare patient. I don't think okay. I think that we used to do a lot of it um, ten years ago, and I think the trauma surgeons are doing less and less of it because they they don't see that there's that. I don't think they see benefits to it. Is there any difference in the way that you would approach, say, an upper extremity DVT versus a lower extremity DVT, um, just from the o- overall approach? Sure, sure. No, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think that, um, well, one, uh, I am much less likely to anticoagulate for distal upper extremity DVTs, because a lot of those are due to, like, IV catheters. If you have a line in place, and mainly where we see this are cancer patients that have either ports in place or Hickman catheters in place, that's a huge risk factor for upper extremity DVT. Um, So if those people, if they've got a line in place, then generally you have to treat it at least three months. And if the line's still in place, you need to keep the anticoagulation. I try to keep the anticoagulation going because you still got your trigger in that vessel. Um, The triggers you look for are lines. You look for thoracic outlet syndrome, which maybe you were getting to. So if you have someone has an unprovoked upper extremity DVT, you got to think about thoracic outlets. And that's usually a young person that's doing, has done a lot of heavy lifting recently, or is a gymnast or a weightlifter. Um, not always though. Um, so if you if they have an unprovoked upper extremity DVT, I look at, and you don't have lines, they haven't had any procedures up here. Then I think about that. Um, or if you have an older person, uh, particularly someone that has cancer, you wonder about, you think about involvement of the, you know, the apex of the lung. I've seen that somewhere. You get lesions that are up toward that, the thoracic outlet that cause troubles there. So those are the kind of things I think about. And then if you have a line, you, I try to anticoagulate all those people if I can. If you have someone that's got leukemia and has no platelets and you're not going to be able to support them through it, we do pull those lines. Yeah, we try to give them anticoagulation if we can. It's nice to give it for um, a week or two to get the the clot more, um, let's say, oh, uh, well organized. But we're in situations where we can't do that, and we pull lines in those people. Rarely do you get into trouble with clots going places unless you got SVC involvement. But I worry about it anytime you got subclavian or SVC involvement. I tend to treat. Uh, anyone that's got axillary, subclavian, 
or more proximal involvement with anticoagulation. If they're further down, you know, down more distally of the arm, I don't always treat those with anticoagulation unless they're having a lot of symptoms, but it's that's rare. Mm-hmm. So most of the clots I'm treating in the upper extremity are going to be proximal clots, so axillary and subclavian clots and IJ clots. Mm-hmm. And again, looking for triggers you can get rid of, such as lines. Yeah. With, with pick lines, does that go the same thing you do? Like if someone has a pick line for two weeks for IV antibiotics and then you you pull the pick line after two weeks, would you still give them a three-month course? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'd probably bias to that just because we don't know that less is better. But if you have someone that's that's going to be a high bleeding risk or you, you're having to support them with platelets, or mm-hmm. I, you could probably treat those a lot less. A lot of people treat a month or six weeks, okay. but it's all based on no, I mean, this is kind of expert, you know, expert. expert opinion. Yeah. Or observational data. There's no real randomized control trials looking at that. So okay. a lot of the treat, actually all the treatment in the upper extremity is really, op, you know, observational data. It's not, there are no randomized trials up there. So I, I wanted to swing back. You you talked about the caffeine DVT, which sometimes in the literature they call like this isolated distal DVT. Right. For when I was reading about this, it, they were talking about either proximal ultrasound, proximal compressive ultrasound, or whole leg ultrasound. Can you right. talk a little bit about how the ultrasound might be done? Just like if we're ordering it, so we know what we're getting. If are we missing clots in certain areas? If we just get the proximal versus the whole leg, how do those differ? Yeah, no. So that's a great question, and that's where I think um, the U.S. versus Europe. You'll see big differences in this. In Europe, most of the ultrasounds that are being done in Europe are proximal leg ultrasounds, whereas you'll see in the U.S particularly in vascular labs, but also in a lot of radiology labs, they'll do whole leg. They'll look all the way down to, you know, posterior tibial veins, perineal veins. They'll go all the way down into the calf. Whereas in Europe, they don't tend to do that. And the reason they don't tend to do that is there have been studies looking at comparing what you find with whole leg DV, a whole leg ultrasound versus proximal leg ultrasound, and then looking at outcomes of if you randomize people to that have leg symptoms to either proximal leg ultrasound versus whole leg ultrasound, if you'll follow those people for three months, the people that you just did proximal leg ultrasound on, there are very few that are having recurrent events. And so the Europeans have pointed to that and said, well, some of those people have had, have had calf DVTs that didn't progress. And that's why there's a, um, I would say a uh, a move in Europe where they're treating fewer and fewer caffeine DVTs mm-hmm. that they're or treating them shorter periods of time, six weeks. Okay. Um, in the U.S., we treat. I I think we're much more aggressive about treatment. We treat right. caffeine DVT. But yeah, I think to me, I think, and I say this to my European colleagues. I mean, if someone comes into you with calf pain and you do a proximal leg ultrasound that's negative and they have a positive D dimer, how are you going to, I mean, <laughs> I'd have to look below or do a serial ultrasound I and mean, yeah. how are you going to leave that person alone? And in, in Europe, maybe you can bring people back at a week for a serial ultrasound. To me, I, I want to know the whole leg and if they have symptoms, I'm going to treat them. Okay. So um, I think in Europe, maybe you can get away with that more here in the U S I think we, everybody yeah. has whole leg ultrasound and goes after it. 
Right. So I think proximal, from what you're describing, I think they just check the uh, femoral system and then the popliteal system and call it a day. Versus whole leg, they would go all the way down. Okay. Right, exactly. And then if if you are just checking proximal, from what I saw, the serial ultrasound, it it seems like some people do a week or two weeks follow-up ultrasound. Exactly. In a week, they bring them back and look again. Yeah. Got it. All right. Maybe, Justin, maybe we should move on to the next part of this and we can kind of delve into PE a little bit and then go into the treatment. Sure. Yeah, so quickly, we can... um, uh, while in clinic, our patient, Emmy, uh, is starting to feel worse right in front of your eyes. She acutely becomes somewhat short of breath. She's complaining of some new chest pain anytime she takes a deep breath. A nurse places a pulse ox, and she is satting at about 87% on room air. Her other vital signs include a heart rate of 102, blood pressure of 128 over 78, and a respiratory rate of 24. She's placed on oxygen and sent to the emergency department. So we talked a little bit about the diagnosis of DVT. Can you uh, guide us a little bit through the diagnosis of a pulmonary embolism? Sure. So um, uh, it's, in this person, I, I would go straight to a CT, angio- <laughs> CT angiogram. I mean, you could use Wells criteria and D, you know, and, and uh, D-dimer, but I think this, this scenario sounds like this person needs a CT. And uh, with that CT, you'd get how much clot is there? Do they have a a uh, proximal or distal involvement of, of the vasculature. And depending on what how they r- report out your CTs, you also might see if the person has right ventricular overload or not. Some people send troponins or pro BNPs to look for, you know, for right ventricular overload. Others use ultras, uh, use echoes to do that. And um, this person sound like they probably have a submassive. They don't sound like they've got a massive. Massive would be hypotension or, you know, that you'd have have that where you've got hypotension. She doesn't have that at this point in time. But it's not like she's got a significant pulmonary embolism. So I'd get CTA. I mean, obviously, you'd start your anticoagulation, get a CTA, see if the CTA shows you that her RV is overloaded. You could do an echo if, if you don't get that information from your CT to look at that. I don't send the troponins and pro-BNPs off. Although there are people that do do that. They seem to be pretty sensitive, though. So they're to, often elevated. I wanted to ask, in, in this in this case we gave you, it's it seems you know pretty obvious that the move is to jump to the, the CT pulmonary angio. Right. But it, it seems to me like clinically it's it can be kind of tricky to diagnose a pulmonary embolism. Can you oh, yeah. speak to that a little bit and, and how you recommend we go about sort of like working these patients up or what algorithm you use or what decision tools? Yeah. So I think in this case, obviously you jump right to your CT, but if you have, I mean, you're right. P's can be very, have very vague symptoms such as like, I feel a little short of breath or it's a little more, it's a little harder for me to go up the stairs and, um, so, and they won't have any chest pain at all. So they just feel a little out of shape. And then so if you're, suspicious of that they have a PE that I would, those people you could do a, a, a D dimer in and look at Wells criteria. And do they have any swelling in their legs? Do they have, they have risk factors, recent surgery, they have cancer, do they have, you know, recent hospitalization. And uh, if your D dimer was elevated, then you would go to a CTA. I usually go to CTA. I usually rarely use a VQ scan because I don't find that they, you get a lot of, um, reads that are like 30% of the time, maybe size 50% in some studies, you get a read that is not helpful. It's not normal. 
and it's not clearly a high prop scan. And so I find that not so useful. So I don't use VQ except maybe in some with renal failure, you might use it. Um, uh, we used to use it some in pregnancy, although there's arguments about, you know, it's the baby probably gets exposed to more radiation with a VQ than they do with a CT. And if you use shielding, you could, you can probably get a good CT or you can just go to ultrasounds and look if you're in a situation where you don't want to, where you think got leg symptoms, they got chest symptoms. You don't want to give them contrast. You could do ultrasound and then just treat them as have the, if they have PE. So, um, and as far as like, I guess you've had a guest talk about this, but as far as like their risk of having bad outcomes, you can use PESI scores right. for that. A lot of people use the PESI score. Yeah. Um, and, or Hestia criteria. I know the ED here uses Hestia criteria. Right often to decide whether they're going to send somebody home. I think most people are pretty um, anxious about sending someone home that's got any hypoxia, any submassapee, they're not going to go home. Um, the, you probably, the only people you're going to send home out of the ED are people that have like incidental events mm-hmm. or people that are minimally symptomatic. I think it's very, in the U.S., it's difficult. In Canada, they'll send people home as, if they're not hypoxic, just regardless of the size of their clot, they'll send them. They'll send them home. If they're not hypoxic, their blood pressure is good. They send people home like that because it's rare for people to get into trouble. But I think in the in the U.S. where it's more litigious, uh, most people don't do that. They'll bring them in for at least a day or so to make you know the highest risk period of time where they're going to deteriorate is going to be the first day or so. They'll bring them in for that. So I think very few people are sending people out. Except, you know, where you have a, a very small subsegmental event that's not suspected, those people probably get treated as outpatients. I want to try to summarize a little bit from what we've talked about so far. So it sounds like for it's it's useful to use the Wells or the Geneva, whether we're considering DVT or PE as a diagnosis. Right. Um, if there's high probability, we're going to proceed right to either an ultrasound for DVT or a CT pulmonary angiogram for if we think that the person has a PE. And then if it's low probability or intermediate, maybe we'll send a D-dimer first to decide if we need that second test, the ultrasound or the CT. Okay. Yeah. I I mean, it's just, I I find that it's useful to use those tools because it's just like so tricky. I I think it was like one of the Pyoped studies when they looked at the symptoms people had with PE, like they don't, many people don't have the classic symptoms you think. So it just seems like it's kind of a crapshoot. That at least that was my read of it. They get a back pain. They get a, you know, just feel out of shape. They can, you know, there's all sorts of symptoms that people just feel tired. Right. uh, And then have a PE. Okay. And you referenced our other show. We talked with Dr. Owen Friedman. I, I think it was like episode 90-something, and we, we talked about a lot of the Hestia and the, the PESI score and things like that. So right. I think what we the, with the rest of our time with you, I would love to hear a little bit about your approach to choice of agent, and let's talk sure. about a little bit of the anticoagulation. That's definitely something we haven't got into, and I'm, I'm sure the audience is going to love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure, sure. So for this... Yeah. For this lady, uh, let's say we confirm that she has a pulmonary embolism. How might you decide, and, and what might be your your go to agent for her? I mean, I think it's, she's someone I'd be wary just because it sounds like she's very symptomatic. 
I'd be where I wouldn't stick her immediately on. If there's someone that I think may deteriorate, may need, uh, you know, a pert team mm-hmm. <laughs> or a rapid response team, that's not somebody I'm going to use a doe. I use doax a lot. So I use Rivaroxaban, a Pixaban a lot for especially DVTs or peas that are not where I'm not concerned about deterioration. So they don't, they, they're not, I wouldn't use those right up front in a submassive PE. Um, because I'm worried if, if they need to go for an intervention and they need a catheter embolectomy, if they needs thrombolysis, I'd rather have them on heparin or low molecular heparin. So most of the time, if they're coming to the hospital, I'm worried about deterioration. I'm putting those people on low molecular heparin or heparin just because those agents allow you a lot more flexibility if you need a, a procedure, especially heparin. If you really think they're going to go, the IR group is going to get involved and do potentially a, you know, a, a catheter embolectomy, then you don't want people on something you can't turn off that's going to make things more complex. So DOAX, I reserve for mostly outpatients. And I use lomacoid heparin or heparin in people that are coming in the hospital. Or once they we have an idea that they're not gonna they're not gonna need advanced mm-hmm. care. They're not gonna need TPA. They're not going to need uh, um, a catheter embolectomy. They're going to do all right. Then I would uh, I'd switch to DOAX. I'm using DOAX for almost all of my my patients with a DVT or PE now, and that's also you know including now the cancer patient population where mm-hmm. we're you know DOAX. You know, we used to use low molecular heparin was first line for all the cancer patients, and now that's everybody's kind of moving toward a Pixaban, even though there's <clears throat> there's only one trial that's out that's a small trial of like, you know, 300 and something patients. The Adam trial hasn't been published yet, but it looks very, if there looks, the, uh, the, re, the results are very similar to the results in the Select D study with Rivaroxaban and with the Hawkeye Cancer VT study with Adoxaban. So all the DOACs are kind of looking like they have the same characteristics compared to low molecular heparin. Oh. And so people are all moving toward yeah. a Pixaban and Rivaroxaban. Right. Uh, it, go ahead. I was going to say, is, is this even for patients that are receiving active chemo? Yeah, yeah, no. So I think that you can even use it in people that are active. You know, so I, I think our oncology group is now, they're used to use a lot of low molecular heparin. And they're switching up because patients don't like it. They don't like right. the injections. It's right. very hard to keep people on low micro heparin for long periods of time. I'd say the, there are occasionally, if they have to be on agents, it might be a drug interaction. So azoles, posiconazole, or something like that. Or um, if they have to be on rifampin, which is a drug interaction with all the DOACs. Um, there are a few of the chemo agents where they're, where they're but there's not a lot of a lot of them that cause problems. So unless they have to be on an agent that cross react, you know, that cross reacts with a pixaban or rivaroxaban, they're use they're using it in 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 patients that are getting active chemo. And all those studies are, you know, they're these are all active. The all the 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 Hawkeye patients, a large percentage of them were getting mm-hmm. chemo, 80 percent. Same thing in the uh, in the Select D study. Most of those patients that active were getting active chemo, unlike the previous studies, which were mostly you know, or a very small percentage of people had active cancer. And the same thing with the Adam trial. Most of those people are getting active chemo. I think the ones where we need to be a little nervous about using a direct oral anticoagulant 
would be people that have GI, especially upper GI malignancies. It looks like yeah. the bleeding rates were higher in people that had GI malignancies, particularly gastroesophageal. And I guess it makes sense. You're putting a a um, an active anticoagulant right on the top, on, right on top of lesions that right. may be friable. And so I can see why those people you get into trouble with direct oral anticoagulants. Do, do you worry about uh, patients with a high BMI, say greater than forty, with direct oral anticoagulants? There's been some studies that have looked at those patients and suggested that they have uh, reduced uh, peaks. That's a great question. And yes, I do. That is one group. I mean, that's one group that I would worry about as far as that, because we know the blood volume goes up with, with body weight. Now it starts kind of plateauing once you get up, um, you know, above like 120, 130 kilos. The, uh, the, there's not a, a linear correlation as you get go up to higher weights. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, I would be concerned about drug levels in those people. We know from the the Rely study, which was an AFib study, they measured mm-hmm. gabigatran levels, and they were lower in people that had the higher weights. And when you got really low weights, you had higher levels and a little bit more bleeding. So there was kind of a U-shaped curve in those yeah. folks, big weights having lower. Rel- so I think we need more. And that's why you see in the ISTH uh, summary, you know, the ISTH uh, guideline, they suggest that with weights over, you know, with weights over 120 kilos or BMIs more than 40, to be very cautious with DOACs until we get more information. There are people doing studies right now on that, but it's it, I'm cautious with the agents once you get above 120 kilos. And is there a preferred DOAC that you have? I is like it- Apixaban the best of the of the group. Um, it looks like the the clotting and bleeding is the lowest. You know, for well, clotting is about the same as warfarin if you compare all of them, but bleeding rates are lower with Apixaban. So we've been used. Also, I think if you look at the pharmacokinetics of apixaban, about a 12-hour half-life in most people, and you're giving the drug every 12 hours as opposed to rivaroxaban, where you have half-life's five to nine hours in in the young set, maybe 12 hours in the older set, and you're giving it once a day, that seems uh, you're getting big peaks and lower troughs with that drug. And so I, I... think a pixaban and that may be why you have a little bit more menstrual you know menorrhagia with with rivaroxaban than you do with a pixaban although they both seem to be a little worse than with than warfarin so i like a pixaban the best of the of all of all the agents although i use rivaroxaban and a, and a pixaban primarily has there been any ongoing trials or studies looking at rivaroxaban twice daily just like the reduction it's a, it recently approved by fda for production of major cardiovascular events for rivaroxaban twice daily with aspirin. Is there anything that's looking at this for DVTPE and specifically because of the half-life being much lower for rivaroxaban? Not that I know of. Not that I, I haven't seen any studies looking at that. I think they looked at it very early on in the drugs development in the first, you know, the phase ones to the very early phase one studies. You could find article, well, I guess poster presentations in Europe <laughs> yeah. on it, uh, but not since then that they went with a once daily dr- regimen. The this kind of leads into the other thing I wanted to ask about, which yeah, was sure. we we find someone has a DVT or PE, and let's say how do we decide if we're going to do more than three months of therapy? Yeah, so I'd say that obviously if you have a triggered event, a strong trigger like surgery, that's a three month person, unless they're still struggling, unless they're 
have major limitations to yeah, their mobility is not they've not recovered from their surgery. They're still having complications, and I'd probably stretch things out. But for the most part, a surgically triggered event, if they're back to baseline, three months is all you need for those because you had a major, a very potent trigger, hundredfold <laughs> increase over the you know the baseline of the population, and that goes away over time. It's time limited. Um, so uh, estrogens, if you your estrogen stopped. And I would think those are people you could think about on the on the sh- on the shorter side. They have a lower risk of recurrence, although it's not zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, medically ill, if you've got a medical uh, someone that a hospitalization, they were very sick. They've recovered to a large extent at three months. Then I would say yes. If they're still not recovered, or their their inflammatory state, their inflammatory bowel disease, their uh, rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or whatever is still very active, then I'd probably keep medical people on longer because they uh, non-surgically provoked uh, events tend to have a little bit higher recurrence rate for the uh, surgically um, after three months, three to six months. After surgically uh, provoked, uh, provoked events, you got about a 0.7% per year recurrence rate. So very low, lower than the bleeding risks. Medical, they're in about the 4% range or so. And then the highest risk people are your unprovoked people or people that have ongoing, major ongoing risk factors like cancer. And those are people that you're going to keep on long, you know, as long as the risk factors there says cancer, they're going to stay on it as long as their cancer is active, demonstrable in in scans, or they're still receiving treatment. As long as they're on treatment, you're going to keep them on. Unprovoked patients, I usually keep them on for long term. If you're concerned, if you want to try to figure out if someone, let's say you have somebody that is um, airline pilots or uh, um, someone that wants to stop, they want to stop therapy, they had an unprovoked event, then I usually try to risk stratify those people. The best, uh, I guess the best model that's out there is the, um, well, the one that's been most validated is the HERDU2 model that uh, Mark Rogers published a couple of years, well, back in 2008 and then had a recur had a uh, uh, validation study published in like 2017, I believe, he in the BMJ. And that's, in women, you can identify people that have a low risk of recurrence. And HERDU2 stands for people that if you have um, uh, basically a lot of swelling still in the legs, so they have a lot of signs of post-traumatic syndrome, that's a point. If they have a lot of erythema in the leg, if they have... Um, uh, if they've had an, a, uh, um, let's see, D-dimers are elevated, if their age is older than 65, if they're obese, and those all give you give you points. And if you have, and you measure the D-dimer on therapy, so if your D-dimer is above, actually, they use a threshold of 250 nanograms per mil, which is pretty low. So if you're below that, then that's you don't get any points for that. But if you have two or more points in that model, then you're at higher risk for recurrence. And those would be people that they would say you should stay on if you have. And these are people with an unprovoked, these are women, women with their first, first unprovoked, you can use her do too. Right. And it's been, and so those people, you know, those you could, they have a 3% or less risk of recurrence per year in, Mm -hmm. in people that have low risk. Um, Men, unfortunately tend to be about twice the risk of recurrence of women. So, that model really didn't identify a low-risk group of men. 
Other people have, there's a Vienna prediction model that you can use that less validated that I assume a validation study is ongoing. The DASH model is another one that D-dimers, hormones, <laughs> age, and uh, gender. Um, and that one has also been validated in retrospective populations, but not a prospective study. So I use those <coughs> along with D-dimer to kind of identify people who are at higher risk for recurrence mm -hmm. if they want to come off. In men with like pulmonary embolism, my bias is to, is to keep those guys on because men have a higher recurrence rate and people tend to recur with what event they had the first time around. If they had a PE about 80% right. of the time, they have another PE, you know? And so, and we're, and with all these, we're talking just for the audience, we're talking about first unprovoked DVT. You use these models to determine if you're going to keep them on for indefinite therapy. Or if I'm going to take, uh, I mean, or I, if you might take them off, if I'm going to take them off. Yeah. If they want to really get off, then I, then I say, okay, well, this is your, and I use it as, as a, um, a way to, you know, also for like counseling that, you know, if you, you know, if your percentage of recurrence is 8% per year based on this model, then I'm nervous about, you know, that's much higher than the bleeding risk of being on a Pixaban or Reveroxaban. I think that you're, you're putting yourself at risk. So I use it in, if they, even if they want to go off, I say, well, this is your, you know, I would counsel you against this, but this is your risk if you want to go off because you want to be a police officer and you can't, you can't be a, a cop on, on anticoagulants. So um, I use it in counseling too, but I try to, my biases in men that have, you know, uh, first pulmonary embolism or DVT, I tend to keep them on longer. And women, I use HERDU too if they want to come off. And if they've had recurrent, obviously unprovoked events, then you're kind of on long term. <laughs> If you've had triggered events, not necessarily. I mean, if you had surgically triggered events, you know, then that's not someone you'd have to go on long term mm -hmm. on. You know, you just use better prophylaxis next time around. Well, I think this is kind of leading uh, one of the questions in the lightning round. I'll ask the first sure. one, Justin. You could move us to the next thrombophilia workup. Do you find that useful at all? Because you no. just gave us away. <laughs> okay, good. That's yeah. Great. I don't. I mean, I guess the only thing would be if you're. Concerned about antiphospholipid syndrome, that would make you nervous about using a DOAC in a patient. You know, if it so, if you're really concerned about antiphospholipid syndrome, then you don't want to use a DOAC at least at this point in time. And so, then I would test that. Otherwise, I don't use the other. I don't do the, a lot of the other testing. Yeah. As a fun pearl, if someone did have antiphospholipid syndrome, what would you use for the treatment, and what blood tests would you use to follow? their anticoagulation. Yeah. So if you have someone that has antiphospholipid syndrome, you don't want to, right now we don't think DOACs are safe for them. We've had one, the TRAPS trial came out last year in blood. They had a much higher, like a five-fold higher recurrence rate in Rivaroxaban than they did in Warfarin. So you definitely don't want, so you'd use Warfarin. And generally you can use an INR of two to three. In our clinic, we always check you know, if they have a lupus anticoagulant, I'm concerned about the antibody affecting their INR and actually can make people look therapeutic when they're not therapeutic. And this is one of the things one of my patients taught me years ago mm -hmm. <laughs> is that they had a recurrence <laughs> um, and they were therapeutic, but they, when you check a chromogenic factor 10 activity, they were not therapeutic. And so I think if you've got someone that's got a lupus anticoagulant, once you have them in the therapeutic range, two to three. I would check a non-clot-based assay to make sure that they're 
their INR is actually therapeutic. And that would be like a chromogenic factor 10 activity. That's what I would do. Okay. And we do that. And you have to avoid the point of care monitors for INR if they have a lupus anticoagulant. This does not apply to right. you know cardiolipins or beta two glycoprotein antibodies. So warfarin is still king in in the antiphospholipid syndrome. Great. Another quick one for you: Should I do an extensive cancer workup for every patient with DVT and PE that is uh, unprovoked? No. Yes, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I would. I, we have two studies that show that you, the SUM trial, and there was one in Europe as well. They both show that it's not you know really not picking up cancers that change people's outcomes. And so I would just do uh, age-appropriate screening, and that's it. You stop okay. there. All right. Any last-minute questions for Dr. Strife before we let him go? Do we do the final three lightning round real yeah, quick? Yeah, yeah. quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if uh, there's a subsegmental pulmonary embolism found incidentally on imaging, uh, are these patients that we should treat with anticoagulation or not treat? So um, in patients with cancer, I probably would still treat them. Uh, because they te- the, the the outcomes don't differ from people that have more proximal events. In people that don't have cancer, if they don't have DVT and they're at high r- risk for you know bleeding in the anticoagulation, I wouldn't treat that. Someone I wouldn't treat. So, but you got to look for DVT in those people. But I would you know caution that there is still a, you know data suggests that the outcomes of those people are very good. But it's still we don't have a management trial like randomizing people to. Just follow-up versus mm. anticoagulation. I think that's something that needs to be done. There's a registry study going on right now in Canada with Mark uh, with Mark Carrier. They'll give us more data. Right now, a lot of it's retrospective data that's showing that sub, you know, isolated, isolated subsegmental PE is uh, a disease that may not need to be treated. So in high-risk people, I def, you know, for bleeding, I, without DVT, I definitely wouldn't treat them. No. Great. Another question for a pixaban. Uh, early on, it seemed like people had some hesitancy to do full dose of pixaban in end stage renal disease or chronic kidney disease. Does a pixaban need to be renally dosed, or what? How does a chronic kidney disease change a pixaban dosing? Okay, so this is a an area of evolving. Uh, there was a large observational study published in Circulation back in 2018 that suggested that um, uh, outcomes were better with a pixaban to five milligrams BID than 2.5 milligrams BID in AFib patients. And both those are better than warfarin. Warfarin is worse compared to a pixaban. Now I would caution that that is a observational data set. So you, you really can't use observational data sets to be the definitive, um, to be definitive about how, you know, how a, a, a particular drug performs against another drug. Because there could be other reasons that are influencing people's use of a pixaban or warfarin. You know, how do they get in those two arms? You need a randomized study to do that. There is one going on right now in AFib in end-stage renal disease. So that'll give us the definitive answer. Right now, I, I admit I have put people on dialysis who would not use warfarin or were having calciphylaxis or, you know, I've put I have a handful of people on on uh, a Pixaban. They're all on five BID right now. I think you ought to go with five BID. I have used levels in some of the in some people because uh, a couple of my nephrology colleagues have had bleeds. Most of the levels are okay, actually, which is surprising. <laughs> wow! So I'm very surprised. I'm very because 25 percent of the drugs 
getting out of the body through the kidneys. <laughs> yeah. But um, but I do look, even though people will caution you against using levels, it, it's all we got right now. And so if you want reassurance, I use peaks, peak levels of yeah. a Pixaban in that situation. Yeah. Our uh, third episode started off with me ranting about a, a patient with CKD stage 3B who started on a Pixaban 10 milligrams twice daily with dual antiplatelet therapy. I, uh, I, I, I nearly lost, uh, lost it when that patient came back to me from outside <laughs> hospital. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a great trial that this has nothing to do with DVTP, but the Augustus trial just came out a few weeks ago for, for the AFib, you know, ACS set that, mm-hmm. uh, looks really, I mean, it looks, uh, Pixaban with, uh, Plavix looks really, you don't need to have the triple ther- the DAP with it. So right. I mean, that's a, a study I would look at if you haven't, but, um, this has been amazing. Oh, well, thanks. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry I talked too much on some subjects, but no, I, no. no thanks. It was it, it's great to talk to you guys. Uh, you good questions. This will be tremendously helpful to the audience. Uh, I predict this will be a very popular show, and I, we can't thank you enough. We we need to let you get home, get on with your night. So, hold, hold hold on. He's a, he's a hematologist. Is a, don't you want to ask him if there's anything he wants to plug? Uh, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a pun. That's a pun, yeah. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I would plug one for patients that have questions about uh, DVTP or clots. National Blood Clot Alliance, great website called Stop the Clot. I would go there. Um, if you have uh, anticoagulation questions, I mean, obviously, there's uh, American Heart is a good website. The uh, AC Forum or Anticoagulation Forum is a great website um, that has all sorts of materials about anticoagulation, and and they it's basically a big organization of AC clinic directors and and pharmacists and nurses. So, uh, AC Forum and National Blood Clot Alliance are the the two plugs I would put in there. Oh, the Ash Guidelines. Look at the Ash Guidelines; they're coming out now. <laughs> all right, all right. excellent. <laughs> Excellent. That's Judas Priest on their next tour. <laughs> I think they're touring right now, actually. I think Paul Williams is a big Judas Priest fan. I would <laughs> love to get a Judas Priest go. I'd be fine with that. I am pulling them up on Spotify as soon as we're done here because I got to check not going to get out. a DVT or PE uh, at a Judas Priest show. <laughs> yeah, no, no. see them now if you want to see them because they're in their 70s, I think. Those guys are going to die soon. <laughs> so... I think anyway, that's no, a perfect place to end. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's right. I'm getting punch drunk. Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll stop there. Thanks for the invitation, guys. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy, Paul. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul. They're going to be in your inbox because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at the or contact us at the at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, the one and only Justin Burke and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, which I saw for like the first time because uh, I don't have Instagram. <laughs> And Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook for everyone else that's over the age of 40. Until next time, <laughs> I've been Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Good night. <laughs>
I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Oh, hi, Paul. Yeah, I got to check out Judas Priest. I, I love their name. Uh, you've, I, I don't you've think heard I've Judas heard Priest. You, you cannot have grown up in the 1980s without ever. I, I probably just don't. I, I have to listen and I'll then I'll probably be like, oh, that's who they are. But breaking the law would be the one I think you would probably. Oh, yeah. OK, yeah. fine. So if you've seen Beavis and Butthead, you know Judas Priest. Yeah, I do. Yes. I do. Yes. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I was going to be like, oh, yeah, I, you have the same taste as Beavis and Butthead because they're wearing all this. <laughs> <laughs> they're wearing like ACDC, Judas Priest. <laughs> yeah yeah that's the only reference. you should have asked him about beavis and butthead he probably liked it <laughs> yeah, i'm sure he did who doesn't like yeah. beavis and butthead <laughs>